Hello, my name is Wang Yan, and I'm a reporter with News China. With our weekly News China podcast, we aim to give insight into the trends and happenings in modern China through a historical lens. Today, we discuss poverty eradication and the revitalizing of rural villages in China. China vowed to lift its remaining 5.51 million impoverished rural population out of extreme poverty by the end of 2020. If this is achieved, China would realize 10 years ahead of schedule. Goal number one, no poverty of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which were laid out in 2015. Poverty eradication is a part of China's strategy of revitalizing rural villages adopted in 2018. It is designed to build strong agriculture, beautiful rural areas, and a rich rural population by 2050. Though there is a huge rural area in China, the real picture of the rural area seems to be vague and even contentious. Some describe it as backward and dirty. Others think rural people enjoy fresh air and green food with no pesticides. They blame each other for just imagining what rural life is. However, it seems that both camps believe that in ancient China, the countryside was a poetic wonderland in which people lived an easy life. So, the revitalizing rural villages objective means to rediscover that Shangri-La. But what was the real picture of rural areas in ancient China? Is Shangri-La no more than the imagined past? For thousands of years, rural villages have existed. Why would they need to be a part of anyone's imagination? Indeed, there was a lot of imagination in narratives on rural areas in ancient China. Agriculture is in the DNA of Chinese civilization. Rural villages were painted as a pastoral paradise in poems and articles written by ancient Chinese elites. Even criticism of rural areas gave a portrait of picturesque ruins. This presents a challenge for researchers. Professor Hou Xudong, Dean of the Department of History at Tsinghua University, found it nearly impossible to piece together a real picture of Chinese ancient villages from written historical records. Instead, he had to delve into information on inscribed stones. In the introduction of his book on village life of about 1,500 years ago in China, he reflected on the lack of imperial research and the dominance of romantic imagination in the research on ancient Chinese villages. It is difficult to research any Asian social organization anywhere in the world. However, in China, the problem is more caused by the top-to-bottom view of history rather than by the passage of time. The 2,000-year-plus stable centralized imperial system in China underlines the tradition of focusing on imperial rulers and institutions in historical research. Less attention is given to the local level, let alone rural villages. This is even more evident when we compare the situation in Western Europe, particularly France and Germany, 
a lot of complete records of medieval villagers there provide valuable information for scholars. This is largely due to the relatively weak state power and well-established grassroots organizations there. The vague picture and difficult academic research set the stage for an idyllic imagining of ancient villages in China. There is a Western voice in this imagining, and the main pusher of this narrative were European missionaries. The age of discovery from the 15th century brought the earliest Jesuit missionaries to China. They did not pay much attention to Chinese villages. Missionaries who came to China later were mainly Protestants. They hoped to spread Christianity among the Chinese public. How could they get more support from their churches back home? Should they choose to report to their churches about the land with simple people ready to accept new ideas or people ready with their own sophisticated, well-established view of life? Which one would be easier for the spread of Christianity? The answer is clear and realistic. Moreover, some Western elites were disappointed by the modern civilization brought about by the Second Industrial Revolution during the late 18th and early 20th centuries. They felt a sense of deja vu when they saw the pre-modern Chinese villages. If they happened to go to a place which they thought was a paradise, then the legend of a village paradise was thus created. Certainly, Chinese villages in Western narratives were not all about paradise. But in today's China, the rising middle class tends to cast their eyes on the villages with a sentiment of nostalgia and sympathy. For them, it is a Shangri-La-style description of the villages from which many of them came and left behind that strikes a deep chord. Though academic research so far has not presented a clear picture of Asian Chinese villages, it is still possible to answer the question about whether Asian Chinese villages were idols. And the answer is they were not. A modern urbanite can hardly know how tough life is for farmers, especially those who lived on the major harvest of the land in ancient times. China has a long history of agriculture that mainly relied on farming a very limited amount of land per capita. Oxen and plows were widely used because they were good tools for small rough land. By contrast, land per capita in Europe was much larger. Husbandry also contributed a lot to agriculture in Europe, and the heavy horse plow was widely used on the big flat land there. As a result, Chinese people mainly lived on a plant-based diet with little protein. Husbandry in Europe provided dairy and meat for Europeans. This is why many more Chinese suffer from lactose intolerance than Europeans, even today. An example of malnutrition in Asian Chinese. Peasants, as producers of food, were in the disadvantaged position in terms of access to food. As the Chinese saying goes, peasants have to bend down with their hands facing the yellow land and their backs facing the sky when they work the land. This life was by no means similar to the life of Tao Yuanming 
a reclusive poet of the fourth and fifth centuries, who famously described how he enjoyed the view of the mountains when he was picking chrysanthemums in his yard in a village. Many people interested in the history of ancient China believe there were no imperialist delusions below the county level. A peasant did not have to deal with any official agency as long as he paid taxes, including grain. This is not true. Government institutions had been deployed below the county level since the centralized imperial system was set up during the Qin Dynasty in the third century BCE. And further developed in the Western Han Dynasty, which followed the Qin. There are debates on how those institutions worked and changed in different dynasties since the Qin and Western Han. But the consensus is that the institutions represented state power. The purpose of the arrangement was to reshape the governance structure in villages by wedging state power into grassroots communities and their traditions. Each household, either in villages or in urban towns, had to register their family members and wealth in official records. Imperial rulers decided how much tax to collect and how many soldiers should be conscripted according to the registration information. This was a basic national policy for thousands of years in China's imperial system. The only question is whether the state was always powerful enough to rule the villages. But there was no doubt that the state had governance arrangements at the village level. Based on the illusion of a lack of imperial governance in villages, there is another illusion that a village in ancient China was governed by local influential landowners. The landowners did not pass the final national examination to become an official, which was held at the imperial palace of the capital. But they were respected by locals for passing the local exams to be recognized as intellectuals. They were also rich as landowners. They normally judged things with good sense and were emotionally attached to their neighborhood. Their rule was much more benevolent than imperial government officials who abused their power by taking away food and men from villagers' homes and beating them relentlessly. However, proper research on Chinese village gentry can only be found going back to the 19th century. There are few records before that. We cannot take for granted that accounts of the situation a hundred years ago can represent more than two thousand years of history. Indeed, the reason that the leadership of the landed gentry in China's villages has become a topic in recent years. May be largely related to the special situation in the last years of the Qing Dynasty. In the mid 19th century, the Taiping Rebellion led by Hong Xiuquan, who claimed he was the son of God and the younger brother of Jesus Christ, swept China. The Qing army was defeated. The Qing ruler then encouraged local Han officials and powerful landed gentry. To organize their own military forces to fight against the Taiping army, but the imperial treasury did not fund the forces. Such local military forces in Hunan and Anhui provinces played a major role in defeating the Taiping militias. 
Local officials who led the forces relied on local influential landowners to deal with local affairs in the chaotic situation at that time, including raising funds for the military forces and daily operation of villages. This was the first time that governance in rural areas appeared to be dominated by local landed gentry instead of the government. The second time a similar situation happened was during the Boxer Rebellion. The Qing attempted to use the peasant uprising to drive all foreigners out of China. But the Western Coalition Army occupied Beijing in 1900 after the Qing Army and the Boxers besieged the legation quarter where the Western embassies were located. Empress Dangle Cixi and Emperor Guangxu fled Beijing. In an agreement with the Western powers during the Boxer Rebellion, governors in southeastern areas promised not to implement the Qing's imperial decree of supporting the Boxer Rebellion. Thus, imperial control of society was even more undermined. The power vacuum left in rural areas was filled by the landed gentry. It is clear that the so-called golden times of rural governance by the landed gentry took place when China was plagued with wars and social unrest. People suffered. Many were killed or left homeless. There was no idol at all. Believing, with Max Weber, that man is an animal suspended in webs of significance he himself has spun. I take culture to be those webs, and the analysis of it to be therefore not an experimental science in search of law, but an interpretative one in search of meaning, noted the U.S. anthropologist Glyford Gears in his book, The Interpretation of Culture, published in 1973. In this sense, imagining village life, no matter in what way, bears cultural significance. Its cultural meaning should not be regarded as nonsense or ignored. Imagination creates vision, and vision lays the foundations of the future. The expectation, description, and construction of an idyllic rural world is worth pursuing. That is end of our podcast. Thank you to our writer, Dr. Zhang Yue, editor and translator Li Jia, and copy editor Kathleen Nade. We hope you enjoyed it, and thank you for listening. See you next week.